This is Scott Becker with the Becker's Dental Podcast and Becker's Healthcare. Thrilled today to, be, to talk to an expert in the dental service organization area, DSOs. We're here with Bill Barrett today. Bill, can you take a moment, introduce yourself, tell us about your book and how you got so far in front in sort of serving and working in the dental, the DSO space? Yeah, so um, my background is, you know, I, uh, I came up as a mergers and acquisitions lawyer and um, kind of really about 23 years ago, 22 years ago, um, on accident almost, I stumbled into the dental space where I, I was invited to give a small speaking engagement by an accountant who was a member of the uh, American Academy of Dental CPAs. So, you know, I did, you know, it was kind of a simple little thing, go and do a lecture on top 10 mistakes, uh, legal mistakes that dentists often make in their practices. And um, it kind of got me started in the in the, the business on, on accident. And it quickly segued into doing a lot of practice transitions. So going back over 20 years ago, um, almost every practice transition we did was was a, a doctor to doctor transaction uh, in the you know very traditional structures and setups and valuations that had been going on for many many years, and all of a sudden um, as I kind of established a, a reputation as being a, a go to person in that space, um, DSOs you know private equity backed DSOs became you know started to emerge, and for me. You know, I started doing those transactions, um, I don't know, maybe I'm going to say 13, 14 years ago. And back then, every, you know, every so often, uh, you'd, you'd have maybe out of every 10 dental practice transitions I received back then, maybe one was a, a DSO transaction. So sparing you all the details on 20 years, fast forward to now. Every 10 phone calls we get, I would say eight are DSO transactions, which is really remarkable, you know, when I reflect upon my career. And what started happening was going to your question about the book, um, we're fielding so many questions about DSOs. What were they? How did they make money? How did they transact? What do those transactions look like? How are they structured? Should I consider it? Uh, what does life look like after I do a deal with the DSO? And so on and so on and so on. That we kind of felt compelled, you know, to try to put out a, a book that really went right to the heart of all the questions that we were being asked. So the book, um, the the DSO decision, it it kind of a, a tackles it from many different vantage points, and it's it's meant to be educational. It's not taking a side. It's not saying we think DSOs are the the best thing to happen to the profession. And it's not saying that they're a bad thing that's happened to the profession. Um, it's really just uh, laying out, you know, our view based on our experience of the different uh, things that have happened. And, and we finished the book off with a paragraph on, on uh, preservation of private practice dentistry. So it, it really does try to look at, um, you know, the what's happening in the world of DSOs and consolidation from a lot of different angles. And Bill, my my last number, and I, the number is going to be directly correct, but not correct. There's 200,000 plus dentists in the country. Is there a sense of what percentage of those today are connected to one of these private spot, private equity sponsored dental services organizations or DSOs? Is there a sense of how much is you know? And not very long ago, it was a very small percentage. So dental services organizations view there's a huge opportunity to consolidate these. What does that number and makeup look like today? 
Yeah. So based on, you know, you, you hear different things from different people and, you know, again, trying to, to have a presence as, as someone who's uh, an expert or knowledgeable in the space, you know, I, I've sat and met with various private equity groups and, you know, looked at their models and talked to them about their research and so forth. And when I, my takeaway is somewhere around 12 to 15%, and you're right, it's about 200,000, um, you know, I think there's about 180 something, 190,000 um, general dentistry uh, license holders that practicing in the United States, something around that. And about 12 to 15% is the number I hear that have already been consolidated. Um, so that's, you know, on, on the one hand, that's that's a lot, but it's but it's not a lot, you know. Um, and I think what's why, at least in my opinion, I think why you see so much intensity and in, and in, in, and so many dollars being thrown at consolidation right now, is that if you look at that, you know, let's call it like you said a round number. Let's look at it at two hundred thousand. I'm also, uh, you know, told by many groups that the research shows that about half of that group is in the baby boomer generation and is either at or in the near future will be at a stage in their career ready for transition. So I, I think when you take the fact that there's a lot of consolidation left to occur and there's a lot of people at an age when they're ready to transition or, or that are going to be approaching that age, it's kind of like a perfect storm of creating so much activity in terms of mergers and acquisitions. Amazing. And talk about this. When you, when you talk about what works in DSO transactions, when you see DSO transactions and they go well, or DSO companies, they go well, what's generally going right? And then the flip side is what's going wrong? Yeah, so I think, you know, one of the things that, that doctors have to really look at, you know, kind of do some soul searching on when it comes to these deals is, is understanding these organizations all have different cultures, like any other business organization. Um, some that I've come across, I feel are, are like, you know, just hardcore business. You know, you, the people driving and running everything are, um, are really, you know, business folks, finance folks, and, and they're not necessarily what I would personally refer to as kind of like the doctor centric um, type of organization. And there's other organizations, even some, some large ones that, you know, are, are driven by a doctor founder who had a vision um, for whatever it was in terms of how they viewed uh, practice should continue. And, and there's, there's a lot of different approaches to what DSOs look like. And for the doctors, you know, being part of a large organization is something that, you know, not everybody's equipped for. Because remember, too, in most of these deals, especially now, what I see consistent on every letter of intent that hits my desk is a requirement of at least five years full-time employment working for the DSO post-closing. So you're making a long-term commitment to be part of this business, part of this culture. And for some doctors, it's it's not the easiest uh, transition. And um, you know, Why is one of that my commitment, that five-year commitment? Because, I mean, you, we've got an audience here that will be listening to us from the dental area, the DSO area, plus also hospital and health system executives and leadership. Why, why do people want – I mean, I guess it's the same for almost any kind of buying a practice and employing physicians. Just very briefly, why do people want that five-plus-year commitment when they hire or buy a practice? Well, so I think that 
first of all, you know, consistency. And I don't think DSOs, although they're very good at recruiting, the last thing they want to do is, is have a lot of turnover and have to do a lot of recruiting and to fill gaps on practices. And remember, a lot of practices that get acquired are individual doctor practices. So if the doctor doesn't stay on um, or exits early, there's an impact there. In fact, I was just negotiating a deal yesterday where um, part of the rollover equity component has, uh, even though in theory the doctor is paying for that rollover equity, it's part of their enterprise value, um, they're requiring a, a five-year vesting period in the rollover equity. And it, a lot of groups like that one are, are trying to really make sure the doctor sticks around for, for continuity, but also you know, they're, they're hearing from the investment banking side that when they look to go to the next level, recapitalize, um, they, they, one of the big factors they look at is turnover. And, you right. know, and those, so, those doctors are the asset. Those doctors are really the assets, the business. So if you lose those doctors, once you build such an institution that you can recruit into, you end up really in a spot where the, the dollars are walking out the door. The business is walking out the door with the doctors. Talk about, Bill, what are some of the most, I mean, you've had an unbelievable career in this. You've built a practice around it. You've written a book on it. Give us two or three of the most interesting things that you're watching today in this world. So one, one of the things that um, I find to be very remarkable is the, the kind of valuations that we're seeing on these deals. You know, keep in mind that before this surge of consolidation, Doctors were used to practices being valued at a percentage of their average gross receipts. And that percentage would range, on average, it was around 75%, uh, maybe a little higher for, for a really highly profitable fee-for-service practice, uh, maybe lower for a, an insurance-based practice or a, a Medicaid practice. You'd have a lower percentage of the average gross in terms of evaluation. And, and now when you when private equity comes in and they look at the earnings and, and they analyze EBITDA and apply a multiple, doctors are sometimes getting two and three times the annual gross receipts of their practice. You know, so just a few years ago, they they were hoping that you know they'd sell their practice to someone for 75% of the average of the last three years of gross, and now they're looking at two or three times their average annual receipts. But remarkable and and a, a huge shift in in a marketplace, which I think is something that is um, is striking. I, I, I also find that- What's driving that, that and how long can that last? Is that driven by sort of their ability, the private equity fund's ability to arbitrage, the DSO's ability to arbitrage these deals? How long can that last if there's not real earnings coming out of it? You know, doesn't that, does that become a scale game without income or how does that work that they then turn this into a ongoing enterprise that has value and that could have value when they transact again, meaning the private equity from the DSO. Yeah, so with the consolidation, um, everything that the DSO does, right, when it comes to expenses, everything is going to be, is lower. They're buying supplies lower. They're getting technology and equipment lower. They're, they have uh, access to talent. Um, they've got centralized billing and collecting. They've got centralized marketing. You know, so so even if you take a practice that just stays consistent with its production, the, the expenses are are going down. And when you're able to 
be um, engaged with insurance carriers and, and you're, del you're delivering to them uh, providers, a, a much larger network of providers, uh, re uh, reimbursements are higher. So, so in a practice that just stays flat in its production, um, your, you know, your expenses are down, your revenue, your revenue is up. And, and that's if you don't even materially grow the practice. So uh, if you're buying, you know, these practices and, and able to, to have a result that maybe is yielding twice the annual revenue of, of a practice as a, as a purchase price. And, and, and you're able to do that at, let's say a five to seven times multiple of EBITDA. And then, and then, you know, on the back end, you're recapping at 18 to 20 times potentially. Um, who knows? Maybe more. Maybe maybe a little less. It, but but that's a big number. It, no, as long as they're recapping at those kinds of numbers, it all works out quite frankly. So tell us one more thing. Tell us, uh, Bill, where people could find you and where they could find the book. You know, where do people learn more about your practice and the book and so forth? So you know, if people are interested in learning more about DSOs. They're hiring you to represent them in their DSO transaction. How do people find you and find the book? Well, so um, they could find me online. Um, our, you know, our website is uh, mblawfirm.com. That's uh, like Mandelbaum Barrett, which is, of course, the name of the firm. Uh, mblawfirm.com is our, our website, and they could find me there. The book, The DSO Decision is available on Amazon and any other place that you might want to uh, purchase a, a book. Um, majority of our sales, though, come uh, right from Amazon. Um, and yeah, you know, we're, we're always out there and looking to um, do speaking engagements, uh, you know, we, which we do quite a bit around the country at various uh, events and venues. So, uh, but yeah, mblawfirm.com dot com is a great place to reach me and um and the book is available on amazon and i appreciate you having well, me on and and great questions well you built a great practice i guess i'll ask you the tough question for the day the tough question of the day Have you ever in this this i, I ask this question all the times of two of my close close friends at a, a law firm called jaffe berlin do you ever think that you should go to mandelbaum arm wrestle and think about changing it to Barrett Mandelbaum? <laughs> you mean <laughs> yes. I mean, do you ever think about like a cage match or an arm wrestling match, any kind of that to, to switch the two names around? I mean, it seems my friends Jaffe and Berlin, we always joke, you know, how did they end up Jaffe Berlin versus Berlin Jaffe? And they had some kind of, I don't know how they came up with it originally, but now it's stuck forever. But do you ever think, you know, that the borders should be changed, that you guys should have a discussion about it being Barnett Mandelbaum, not Mandelbaum Barnett? So, okay. So my last name is Barrett. Um, B A R R E T. I'm so sorry. No, no, no don't be sorry. sorry. That. Yes, it's okay. Um, so it's funny though. Okay, so I've never really thought about the cage match or the arm wrestling, especially in light of the fact that um, the last time a name had been added to the firm name, the firm has been in business for 92 years, founded in 1930, and the last time there had been a name partner of the firm was in 1979, and in, in wow. January January of this year. Um, I became a name partner and the firm's name just changed to Mandelbaum Barrett. Um, and the fun part of that little story is that I had, um, it was never something I asked for. It was never something that was frankly, even on my, my radar uh, as a, a goal in my career. In fact, coming from a large institutional worldwide law firm in New York earlier in my career, 
the 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 two name partners have been dead for like over a hundred years. So in my mindset, having my name on the door of a law firm was not some, especially a law firm that's been around almost a hundred years. I I'd never really expected it, and my partners um, bestowed the honor upon me, and it came as a complete surprise, uh, a, a pleasant one, obviously. But um, you know, it was really the the true honor of my professional career and. Uh, so yeah, I think I'm pretty good. Being I mean, that is that is the literally name. that is the most well done, most politically nice answer I've ever heard in my life. You handled that brilliantly with the plum, and and, <laughs> and obviously, if you just became a name partner a few months back, it's too early to ask to arm wrestle about it. It'd be the height of audacity, inappropriateness, and all, all those things. I'll put that off for five years. <laughs> when, when I'll interview, I hope between now and the next five years, and maybe five or ten years down the road, it'll be time to ask that question again. Uh, Bill, thank you so much for joining us. Just an absolute pleasure. Thank you very, very much. Uh, It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take care.